Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, and suicide that may be unsettling. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The pursuit of success is ingrained in us from the moment we're asked what we want to be when we grow up. As we enter our respective careers, we soon realize that achievement requires far more than hard work and ambition. When it comes to rising in the ranks, it's not just what you know, it's who you know. And sometimes, it's who stands in the way. In physician Anthony Garcia's mind, the faculty doctors at Creighton University were insurmountable hurdles. They saw a concerning streak of aggression and negligence in him and felt a duty to address it. When they terminated his residency, the blemish on his record followed him at every turn. Rejection festered into a fiery rage that led Anthony on a vengeful murder spree, one the city of Omaha will never forget. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to help Alistair with some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Anthony Garcia, a doctor you didn't want to come over to make a house call. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Anthony Garcia, a pathologist who targeted Creighton University's medical residency program's faculty in an effort to enact revenge. Today, we'll discuss how Anthony's desire to appease his parents led him to a career in medicine and the career stress that gave rise to homicidal rage with horrifying consequences. Next time, we'll follow Anthony's vengeful murder spree to its painful conclusion and pinpoint the careless mistake that helped officers track him down. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. On the evening of March 13th, 2008, Dr. Bill Hunter clocked out after a long day at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. As he drove home, he looked forward to seeing his 11-year-old son, Tom. But upon returning home, he noticed the house was bizarrely still. All that could be heard was the eerie sound of a video game's startup music emanating from the basement. As he stepped into the hallway, he was met with a gruesome scene. Shirley Sherman, his 57-year-old housekeeper, laid face down in a pool of blood. A kitchen knife protruded from her neck. The scene sent a cold chill through Dr. Hunter, whose thoughts raced in panic. He ran from room to room, calling out to his son in desperation. He found Tom's body in the dining room, mutilated in the same violent manner as Shirley's. Dr. Hunter's hands trembled as he dialed 911. As he awaited help, Dr. Hunter racked his brain. Who would have wanted his son and maid dead? 
Little did he know, he himself had been the intended target. By a stroke of both luck and misfortune, Dr. Hunter narrowly escaped a brutal slaying by Dr. Anthony Garcia. From his birth in 1973, Anthony Garcia's parents dreamed he'd be a doctor. Though they had respectable careers themselves as a nurse and a postman, the Garcias struggled to stay afloat in Los Angeles, California. They worked so much, the Garcias couldn't be around to take care of their son. So young Anthony lived with his grandparents. Few years later, when they were earning enough to support a family, Anthony and his parents were reunited. Now, under one roof, they could be one big, happy family, and Anthony soon had two younger siblings. But once Anthony began school, a storm cloud came over the Garcia family. Academics were a persistent challenge for Anthony. In second grade, he was diagnosed with a reading disorder. Luckily, he had passions beyond literature. With a talent for numbers, he aspired to be a mathematician. But his parents still expected a more lucrative career for their oldest son in medicine. When he matriculated at California State University, Los Angeles, Anthony reluctantly navigated the path they laid out. But with average grades and unimpressive MCAT scores, he wasn't the strongest candidate for medical school. As rejection notices filled his mailbox, Anthony's future as a doctor looked increasingly grim. But then, he was accepted to the University of Utah. When 21-year-old Anthony entered the four-year program in 1994, the curriculum proved arduous. As was the case in high school and college, reading was a continuous battle. Though he was given exam accommodations, Anthony failed several classes and was placed on academic probation. The harsh reality was that his reading hadn't improved much since his childhood diagnosis. In fact, Anthony entered medical school at a fifth grade reading level. Though medical school is filled with hands-on training, much of the work requires an understanding of highly detailed scientific texts. It's amazing that Anthony was even accepted to a program given this learning deficit, but somehow he pulled it off. There's an enormous amount of reading expected from medical students, and with so much complex terminology, much of it in Latin, and the dense information involved, assimilating all this is difficult. There's also the issue of deciphering bad handwriting. Doctors and medical students alike notoriously have sloppy penmanship, and decoding longhand clinical notes or patient evaluations could be really challenging for someone with a reading disability. Even when doctors are out of school and practicing, reading remains a big part of their job. This is especially true for internists, and I usually read about 20 medical journals a month just to stay up to date. Healthcare information is ever-evolving, and there are always new studies and developments for doctors to learn. The probation was a wake-up call, and Anthony revived his grades enough to pass his courses. But even though his trajectory seemed to improve, his outlook remained pessimistic. When his mother visited him on campus, she saw the pain living behind her son's feigned smile. It may not have been apparent to her that his unhappiness stemmed from being pushed into a career he never wanted. Instead, she likely read his stress as dogged determination. And it appears he didn't want to disappoint her with the truth. Without anyone to confide in, Anthony turned to alcohol. A few drinks after class quickly became a dependence. Soon, his reckless behavior behind closed doors spilled into his performance at the hospital, where he helped treat patients as a student. He received poor evaluations from professors, who noticed he often handled his patients inhumanely. One patient complained that Anthony made a routine vaginal examination extremely painful. It was almost as if the resentful doctor in training was taking his academic frustrations out on his charges. Nevertheless, 
Anthony continued pursuing a career in medicine. Though it took him five years, 26-year-old Anthony finally graduated and earned the title of doctor in 1999. And despite his rocky track record, he matched into a residency program. That summer, Anthony and his father loaded all his belongings in a car and drove to New York. There, Anthony began his residency at Bassett St. Elizabeth Medical Center, hoping to eventually specialize in pathology. Pathology is the study of disease and its development in the human body. Pathologists are medical doctors with specialty laboratory training, which allows them to study illnesses on a microscopic level. These healthcare professionals work in either anatomical pathology or clinical pathology. Although the two fields overlap in many instances, anatomical pathology involves the examination of human tissue, while clinical pathology entails the study of bodily fluids. Among other things, pathologists execute tests and procedures that screen tissue samples for cancer and other diseases. They also test blood and urine for the presence of foreign chemical substances and even perform autopsies. Pathologists are really crucial in establishing cause of death, and it's often their job to solve the puzzle of how someone died. These doctors don't typically interact directly with patients and are considered to be resources for other practitioners. Pathologists are able to provide very concrete and useful information in regard to someone's health, and they often work closely with different medical specialists to develop specific and targeted treatment plans. Even though Anthony was entering a field of medicine that's less associated with face-to-face -face patient interaction, all doctors are responsible for thoughtful treatment and ethical care. When it came to thoughtfulness, Anthony was far from the ideal physician. Almost immediately, the faculty and staff at Bassett realized that their newest resident was unequipped for a career in medicine. More than once, Anthony gave patients incorrect prescriptions. On one occasion, he provided sedatives to a patient whose chart explicitly stated, do not sedate. He even slept on the job while a pregnant patient was in labor. Despite his egregious slip-ups, Anthony was never receptive to correction, nor did he show remorse for his outright dangerous actions. He responded to reprimands with bitter deflection, choosing to blame other doctors for his own mistakes. His aggressive tendencies and social withdrawal suggest that Anthony may have been struggling with alcoholism. After repeated incidents, the director of the Bassett residency program asked him to undergo psychological counseling. It's likely Anthony ignored that too, because not long after the director's suggestion, Anthony had an unforgettable outburst. Tasked with caring for a 12-year-old patient, Anthony stood idle in the exam room, ignoring his young patient. When a radiology technician entered and asked what was happening, Anthony exploded, screaming expletives. Naturally, the radiologist reported Anthony, but as the hospital prepared for a disciplinary hearing, Anthony resigned. Leaving a residency voluntarily looks suspicious, but being fired leaves a permanent stain. Anthony knew his best bet was to exit before being ousted. In all, he had been at Bassett for just eight months. With an incomplete residency behind him, Anthony sulked back to his parents' home in California. It's unclear whether he disclosed the reason for his departure, but his family noticed his disheartened demeanor. Though he may have considered walking away from the medical field altogether, he continued applying to residencies. On each of his applications, he failed to mention his exit from Bassett. He knew that such a disclosure could raise suspicions about his skills and mental stability. The tactic of omission worked. In July 2000, Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, naively opened its doors to Anthony Garcia. Coming up, 
Anthony begins his next residency and meets the doctors that turn to targets. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Dr. Anthony Garcia spent his early life chasing his parents' great expectations. They wanted a doctor for a son, so Anthony reluctantly became one. After narrowly graduating medical school and quitting his first residency, 27-year-old Anthony was on his way to his second residency at Creighton University in July 2000. Anthony's first couple of months at Creighton were surprisingly successful. Perhaps because the stakes were high, he wasn't likely to get a third chance. During his first rotation, he received a stellar review from a supervising faculty member. Unlike the doctors at Bassett St. Elizabeth, the Creighton evaluator considered Anthony well-mannered and detail-oriented. Even better, Anthony seemed to be enjoying the program. He posed for photos wearing a pristine white lab coat while gazing into a microscope, then sent them off to his parents, who were thrilled. The images served as proof that their son was not only thriving in his career, but stable and happy again. Unfortunately, the facade didn't last long. While the residents around him grasped the material and excelled with patience, Anthony displayed rudimentary lab skills and seemed to lack a fundamental understanding of medicine. It was clear that his knowledge didn't hold a candle to his counterparts. Sensing the judgment of his peers and faculty, Anthony's original determination to excel shifted to a lackadaisical disinterest. He went through the motions, completing duties on autopilot. Eventually, his downtrodden attitude once again evolved into angry outbursts directed at the faculty members he hated and the students he envied. Just like at Bassett. When it came time for his review in the fall of 2000, one doctor was particularly outspoken. Dr. Chandra Butra. It was evident to her that medicine was not Anthony's true calling. Dr. Butra took a no-nonsense approach to her role at Creighton. She held residents to a high standard, determined to prepare them for the demands placed on a physician. She wasn't afraid to go into critical detail about Anthony's unprofessionalism and questionable lab techniques. Her review was so alarming, it was passed on to the director of the pathology residency program, Dr. Bill Hunter. Whenever a Creighton resident needed an intervention, Dr. Hunter was the charismatic mediator who came to the rescue. As the residency director, he was often charged with mentoring struggling students, guiding them through the program with kindness and understanding. Anthony was no exception. In January 2001, Dr. Hunter met with Anthony to review Dr. Butra's scathing assessment. Rather than showing remorse, the 27-year-old resident was defensive, insisting that Dr. Butra was plotting his downfall. Sadly, the talk with Dr. Hunter did nothing to cease Anthony's malpractice and aggression. 
It may have even made him more intolerant of Dr. Butra. A month later in February, she submitted another negative review that found its way to Dr. Hunter's desk. In response, Anthony berated her in public. Shocked, Dr. Butra spoke to Creighton's department heads. She wanted Anthony removed from Creighton. However, it was hard to convince Dr. Hunter. He was patient with Anthony, hoping to reform him rather than oust him from the program. The chair of the pathology department, Dr. Roger Brumbach, was critical of this soft-handed approach. It's likely he too felt Anthony detracted from the productive environment of the residency. Still, instead of firing Anthony from the residency program, they agreed Dr. Hunter would observe Anthony Garcia further. Shortly after, Dr. Hunter sat in on an autopsy. During the procedure, Anthony misdiagnosed the cause of death. Naturally, another faculty member offered feedback. Anthony's response was belligerent. He refused to adjust his analysis. Here was yet another opportunity for Dr. Hunter to dole out consequences to the unruly resident. But he once again gave Anthony a chance to self-correct. Something he'd soon regret. Just days later, Anthony conducted another autopsy. This time, he seems to have been unsupervised, at least for a portion of it. In the examination room, Anthony opens the body in front of him and performs the usual procedure. But what he did at the end of the autopsy was far from standard. Rather than leaving the body on its back, Anthony flipped it over onto its stomach, leaving the corpse in this improper position when he left for the night. A corpse should always be left on its back after an autopsy for a number of reasons. One major consideration is the fact that relatives want to view their recently departed loved one after the procedure. After someone dies, their heart is no longer pumping blood, so it tends to pool in relation to gravity. This is why when a corpse is left on its back, its skin starts to exhibit discoloration in that area after about one to three hours. This visible color palette of dark reds, blues, and purples is known as postmortem lividity, and it can continue to spread for up to 12 hours after death, further distorting the shape and color of affected tissue. By turning the corpse onto its stomach and leaving it out overnight, Anthony would have caused this person's blood to pool in their anterior region or front of the body. This would have rendered the face discolored and misshapen, and the physical distortion could have been devastating to family members. It would have definitely ruined the possibility of an open casket at the funeral. When the funeral home director saw the body the following day, the face of the corpse was completely disfigured. Not only was the botched autopsy reflective of Anthony's ineptitude, it was an embarrassment for Creighton University. It made the family's loss even more painful as they said goodbye to a body that looked nothing like their loved one. Dr. Hunter, Dr. Brumbach, and Dr. Butra were in full agreement. Anthony Garcia could not meet their standards. Still, Dr. Hunter's heart went out for the troubled resident. Being removed from a residency is a damning scarlet letter. With the termination on Anthony's record, it would be nearly impossible for him to land another residency, let alone become a fully licensed pathologist. Though Dr. Hunter knew Anthony's time at Creighton needed to end, he still hoped Anthony could find success elsewhere. So, Dr. Hunter made a generous proposition. Pending any mishaps, he would allow Anthony to complete his first year at Creighton and gain a certificate for a year of training. Though his contract would not be renewed for a second year, the certificate would show his promise as he applied to other residencies. He also mandated that Anthony issue an apology to Dr. Butra. Anthony acted grateful for Dr. Hunter's mercy and agreed to apologize to Dr. Butra. 
But deep down, he housed resentment, blaming them for his incapacity to complete yet another program. Nevertheless, Anthony's performance improved in the months that followed. He received a promising assessment from an evaluator in May of 2001, reminiscent of the first review he received when he was a brand new resident at Creighton. For a second, it seemed Anthony was intent on turning over a new leaf. But as was the pattern with Anthony, good behavior was rare and fleeting. Two days after that shining review, Anthony's jealousy of other residents reared its ugly head. In May, the chief resident of the pathology department was taking an important exam, one that would dictate his future as a physician. In the middle of his test, his wife received a phone call from an unknown individual. The caller claimed to be from Creighton and told her that her husband needed to drop what he was doing and report to the university immediately. Failure to do so would result in his termination. The chief resident's wife quickly called Creighton's pathology department to find out more information, but none of the faculty or staff had made the call and it was well known that her husband was sitting for an exam that day. It didn't take long for the department to discover Anthony was behind the prank. It was an attempt to ruin his colleague's career. If Anthony couldn't find success at Creighton, he figured no one else should either, not even the high-performing chief resident. This time, Dr. Hunter's response was immediate and unsparing. He'd given Anthony one too many chances. On May 22, 2001, he and Dr. Brumbach called 27-year-old Anthony into the office. There, they fired him on the spot. Anthony gathered his belongings and left Creighton. By leaving his second residency program, Anthony's chances of fulfilling his parents' expectations worsened, but still weren't out of reach. It's not totally uncommon for young doctors to leave residency programs, and when they do, it's most prevalent in the fields of psychiatry and general surgery. However, dropping out is certainly more often a voluntary choice rather than a punitive measure. Students usually leave due to concerns over their physical health, family problems, or mental health issues, which includes being overly stressed by their excessive workload. On the other hand, some doctors in residency training change their programs to pursue other specialties. For example, a resident at a pediatric program might realize it's not a good fit and transfer to a residency in endocrinology. Although it may have been more complicated for them, I've known doctors who've realized great success after switching residency specialties. I've also known competent doctors who at some point chose to revive their medical training after a hiatus. In the wake of two failed attempts, Anthony Garcia really should have examined his reasons for pursuing a career in medicine at all. However, this was perhaps well beyond his capabilities due to mental pressure and alcoholism. He certainly realized he didn't have control over his termination from Creighton. Anthony Garcia's exit was unusually tranquil. He didn't accost Dr. Hunter or Dr. Brumbach, and after a failed attempt to appeal the decision, he seemed to finally accept it. Perhaps it was Anthony's relatively non-combative attitude that inspired Dr. Hunter to extend additional empathy because as Anthony went on to apply to other residencies, Dr. Hunter provided letters of recommendation. For some, this level of forgiveness is impossible to comprehend. But generosity was Dr. Hunter's standard mode of operation. To him, there was good in all people. Everyone deserves a second chance. The tone of his letters was general enough to avoid damning information, but hopeful enough to convince admissions committees that Anthony had a future. Though Anthony faced challenges at Creighton, Dr. Hunter expressed what he later admitted was an overly optimistic belief that a different program could provide the environment Anthony needed to flourish. The letters served their purpose. 
In July 2001, Anthony set out for residency number three at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. And for the first year, it seemed like Dr. Hunter may have been right. Creighton just wasn't a good fit. Sadly, Dr. Hunter was wrong. Throughout the beginning of 2003, his second year in the program, Anthony repeatedly visited the hospital for suicidal thoughts and homicidal ideations aimed at his colleagues. During one hospital visit, he was issued electroconvulsive therapy in an effort to treat his mental health conditions. Electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, is used to treat severe cases of clinical depression when other pharmacologic and behavioral treatments have been unsuccessful. Originally invented by two Italian professors, the procedure was introduced to the U.S. in the 1940s and became very popular in psychiatric institutions. Today, ECT is still employed when less invasive treatment options have been exhausted, and it's about 20 to 40 percent effective. As well as deep depression, it's proven to help curb manic behavior, catatonia, and schizophrenia. It could potentially help treat substance abuse if the dependency developed from an addict's underlying depression. ECT works by sending electrical currents through the brain, which induce small seizures that disrupt cerebral activity. The therapy is done under anesthesia and takes about 5 to 10 minutes per session. Generally, ECT involves an intense initial treatment schedule, followed by regular maintenance sessions with longer intervals depending on their progress. When successful, symptomatic improvement can be seen after six months of treatment, but ongoing maintenance is usually necessary to sustain its benefit. ECT side effects can include confusion, nausea, muscle pains, and headache. It can also lead to memory loss as the procedure greatly impacts the medial temporal lobe, which is tied to long-term memory. This kind of medical intervention isn't a quick fix, but after a series of sessions, someone's condition can become manageable. Sadly, even six rounds of electroconvulsive therapy didn't help Anthony's mental health improve. Before 2003 came to a close, he left the residency and returned to his parents' home in California, where he faced more disappointments. The cost of repeated hospitalization in Chicago had put him $80,000 in debt, causing him to file for bankruptcy in 2005 and apply for disability income. With the added stress of financial hardship, his suicidal thoughts escalated into a suicide attempt in his parents' home. His brother found him and saved his life. Perhaps inspired by his family, Anthony decided to try medicine once again. And somehow, he matched into residency number four at Louisiana State University. In the summer of 2007, he moved to Shreveport and started the program off strong. But in February 2008, as the Louisiana State Medical Board prepared to issue Anthony a medical license, they discovered one of the many skeletons in his closet. After reaching out to Dr. Bill Hunter at Creighton University for verification documents, they learned of Anthony's firing from the program. Dr. Hunter had no choice but to be honest about Anthony's removal. When the State Licensing Board communicated this finding to Louisiana State University, the school administrators realized that Anthony never disclosed the full details of his Creighton residency on his application. This omission constituted grounds for removal. On February 26, 2008, less than a year into his fourth residency, 34-year-old Anthony was fired. Incensed, Anthony likely reasoned that the only way to overcome his past was to silence the Creighton residency director. In the week that followed, Anthony plotted his revenge. He bought a smoke-colored license plate shield to distort his car's identifying numbers and withdrew $300 cash from a bank in Shreveport. For the next week, he'd be untraceable. 
Then, he hopped in his car and drove to Omaha. He planned to confront Dr. Hunter in person and exact deadly revenge. Coming up, Anthony follows through on his bitter scheme. Now, back to the story. Anthony Garcia's tumultuous residency at Creighton University set the foundation for a challenging career trajectory. After his firing, he spiraled into depression in a Chicago residency, then finally landed another opportunity in Louisiana. But his residency at Louisiana State University was cut short when the administration uncovered his 2001 firing from Creighton. Consumed with anger at the man he felt was responsible, 34-year-old Anthony set out to kill Dr. Bill Hunter. In March 2008, Anthony drove to Omaha, Nebraska. Strangely, it seems that he didn't bring a murder weapon with him and had planned to use an item in Dr. Hunter's house once he arrived. Though this meant Anthony would leave the weapon up to chance, the decision was crafty. If he was pulled over by police on his road trip, any weapon in the car would likely be discovered. On Thursday, March 13, 2008, at 3.18 p.m., Dr. Hunter was still at work. A few miles away, his 11-year-old son, Tom Hunter, stepped off his school bus and headed towards home. The Hunters lived in the Dundee neighborhood of Omaha, Nebraska, an affluent community known for its safety and tranquility. Until March 2008. Once inside his house, Tom shed his shoes and backpack, haphazardly tossing them on the floor. Since it was Thursday, the family housekeeper, 57-year-old Shirley Sherman, was doing her routine cleaning. She may have said hello to Tom as he crossed her path, but Tom was gone from her sight as quickly as he came, heading down to the basement to play video games. At 3.20 p.m., around the same time Tom settled into the basement in front of his Xbox, Anthony's silver Honda CRV crept up the street. He had alcohol on his breath and revenge on his mind. Unbeknownst to Anthony, the hunter's across-the-street neighbor was driving right behind him. She noticed the pinkish color of the out-of-state license plate, but couldn't make out the number through the smokescreen. The slow crawl of the CRV was strange, but she wasn't too suspicious. There had been plenty of homes for sale recently. They were probably looking for the right address for an open house. When Anthony finally reached the hunter's address, he stopped and peered back into the rearview mirror at the woman in the car behind him. In the reflection, their eyes met. The neighbor got a glimpse of Anthony, a man with black hair and olive skin. Nervous, Anthony quickly pulled his car forward up the street, past Dr. Hunter's house, until the woman in the car behind him disappeared. Anthony turned onto the next street over and parked. Sitting in his car, Anthony went over his plan again, adjusting some of the specifics. It wouldn't be as easy as parking right in front of the hunter's home. His car would be an obvious sign of his presence. What he didn't realize was that no matter where he parked in the Dundee neighborhood, residents would take notice. In a mostly white neighborhood, his brown skin stood out. In fact, Anthony's parked car was immediately noticed by another neighbor who stood by the window inside her house. She watched as Anthony exited his car and started walking up the street, her curious eyes following until he crossed over to the next street and out of her sight. Back on Dr. Hunter's street, Anthony was immediately spotted by another local resident who was walking the opposite direction. That neighbor saw him approach Dr. Hunter's home and ring the doorbell. 
Detectives later speculated that upon hearing the doorbell from downstairs, Tom left his Xbox game to greet the visitor. From outside, the neighbor saw Tom answer the door and say hello to Anthony. Figuring the two knew each other, the neighbor carried on down the street. It's likely Anthony asked Tom if his father was home. Learning that he wasn't, Anthony may have been frustrated. He had driven over 700 miles to kill Dr. Hunter. The absence of his primary target threw a wrench in his elaborate plan. But leaving now would only create loose ends. Tom would probably tell his father about Anthony's odd visit and his cover would be blown. Anthony quickly assessed his circumstance and arrived at a menacing hypothesis. The pain of one's own death can't compare to the pain of living in the wake of a loved one's death. Here was Anthony's opportunity to make Dr. Hunter suffer in a way that would haunt him for the rest of his life. At that moment, 11-year-old Tom became the new target. It's unclear whether Anthony convinced Tom to let him inside or whether he forced his way in. But once he'd infiltrated the Hunter residence, it turned gruesome. Anthony made his way to the kitchen and retrieved knives from the knife block. Then Anthony grabbed hold of Tom and drove the five-inch blade into his neck. At that moment, Shirley headed downstairs as soon as her feet left the final step, she saw Anthony standing over Tom's lifeless body. It's unclear whether Anthony knew there was another person in the house, but face to face with Shirley, he lurched at her. Shirley ran through the hall towards the back door, but Anthony was quicker. He met her with the same deadly technique, this time with a seven-inch knife her body sank to the floor. In the span of 10 minutes, his revenge was complete. Out the front door, Anthony walked calmly back to his car. Then he sped towards his parents' home in California. Two hours later, around 5.45 p.m., Dr. Hunter arrived home to devastation. The entire scene struck him as surreal. He made his way to the kitchen and dialed 911 from the landline. The murders were so unbelievable, their reality hadn't settled in yet. Dr. Hunter calmly spoke to the operator who instructed him to exit the home and wait on the porch for police to arrive. Outside in the cool night air, Dr. Hunter's shock faded to grief. He couldn't bring himself to call his wife. He could only manage to stand in silence until Detective Moyce from the Omaha Police Department arrived. A 34-year-old homicide detective, Moyce was adept at uncovering intricacies at crime scenes. Casing the home, he took detailed notes. He noticed there were no valuables taken, meaning the criminal only sought to kill. Moise also observed the identical knife wounds in both victims' necks. These injuries weren't random. They were expertly done. Later that evening, Moise attended Tom and Shirley's autopsies. The pathologist observed that the carotid artery and jugular vein in both victims were severed. The carotid arteries and jugular veins, traveling together and located on both sides of the neck, are two critical pathways for blood flow to the head. The carotid arteries carry oxygenated blood from the heart into the neck, face, and brain. Our jugular veins, on the other hand, drain this blood from the head once the oxygen has been delivered from the arteries, so it can return this deoxygenated blood to the lungs to gather oxygen. When one or more of these blood vessels gets severed, death can occur anywhere from seconds to minutes. 
This is because these arteries are under immense pumping pressure, and tearing them would cause immediate and massive blood loss. Unless someone in this situation gets immediate medical attention, they really don't stand a chance. To Detective Moise, these knife wounds were the hallmarks of a professional killer, someone with detailed knowledge of the human body. The killer's expertise was reaffirmed by the crime lab results, which found no DNA or fingerprints left at the scene. The culprit was smart enough to wear gloves. All signs pointed to a premeditated attack. The first-hand accounts of Dr. Hunter's neighbors proved helpful as police created a composite sketch. They knew they were looking for a heavy-set man with olive skin and dark hair. Without any physical evidence, there was essentially no trail to follow. The best method for finding suspects would be to run an evaluation of who had motive to harm Tom, Shirley, or Dr. Hunter. Detectives began with Dr. Hunter, who came into the police station for his first interview a mere hour after his son's death. Officers urged him to think of anyone who may want to hurt him or his family. They specifically asked him to consider residents and colleagues at Creighton University's teaching hospital. Dr. Hunter struggled to come up with any names. As the director of the pathology residency, he took pride in building good relationships with faculty and students. Even among the residents who weren't successful in the program, he was respected and beloved. But Dr. Hunter was determined to provide police with a list of suspects. Though grieving, he met with his colleague, Dr. Brumbach, later that week. Together, they reviewed the files of every single resident who attended the pathology program since 1990. They stopped on the name of a student from Russia whose residency lasted from 2004 to 2007. Several faculty members found the residents strange and intimidating. When Dr. Brumbach insisted Dr. Hunter make the student take a psychological evaluation, the student filed a complaint for employment discrimination. It was Dr. Hunter's caring and charismatic personality that put an end to the scandal. Just as with Anthony Garcia in 2001, Dr. Hunter helped the Russian student find another job. In turn, the student dropped the complaint. Though that conflict was behind Dr. Hunter, Detective Moyce and lead investigator Scott Warner still spent a considerable amount of time looking into the Russian student. The investigation consumed most of the summer of 2008, but after an interview with the man, Moyce and Warner found that he had a strong alibi. He'd sent an email from his work computer in Pittsburgh hours before the massacre. The detectives didn't give up their search. In the days that followed, an administrator at Creighton University called police to report her own list of suspects. It included Anthony Garcia. On March 17, 2008, just four days after the murder, two officers visited the administrator when questioned, she mentioned the prank call Anthony made to a resident, resulting in his firing. To the officers, Anthony's mischief seemed benign, not enough to warrant murder. They wrote his name down, but never followed up on the tip. For two months, the investigation stalled. In May, Dr. Hunter emailed one of those officers the names of two individuals he fired from Creighton years ago. These two people hadn't come to mind in his initial sit-down with Dr. Brumbach. Because these residents left the program quietly, the doctors had no reason to believe they held any grudges. One of those residents was Anthony Garcia. The officer had now come across the same suspicious name twice in the span of two months. But surprisingly, she took little action, if any. For whatever reason, she determined that looking into Anthony Garcia was a waste of the department's time. Meanwhile, it appears Detective Moyce wasn't made aware of the tips. He spent the rest of 2008 chasing dead ends, 
After looking into Shirley's turbulent relationship with her daughter's boyfriend, detectives briefly thought he may be a suspect. But the young man had a solid alibi. Towards the end of 2008, detectives ran background checks on various people Tom communicated with through Xbox's online gaming platform, but none of these leads proved helpful. Meanwhile, Anthony Garcia remained a forgotten name in a binder. At the close of 2008, the investigation into Tom and Shirley's murders hit an inevitable impasse. With all the major leads exhausted, the investigation was transferred to the Cold Case Unit in early 2009. In March, the one-year anniversary of the murders came and went. The case would remain cold for another four years, as Dr. Anthony Garcia bided his time. Soon enough, he'd exact his next revenge plot attacking another doctor. Next week, Anthony Garcia's homicidal rage reaches the door of two more doctors, but a careless act helps the Omaha detectives zero in on him. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much, Alistair. For more information on Anthony Garcia, among the many sources we used, we found the book Pathological, The Murderous Rage of Dr. Anthony Garcia by Henry J. Cordes and Todd Cooper extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Courtney Taylor, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 